brought to you by Penguin. Now, I don't just drink martinis. I'm an omni drinkeress. So, yeah, I will do something. We'll make a cocktail, a different cocktail uh, every night at five o'clock, and it's very civilized. Hello and welcome to the weekly Penguin podcast. Now, this is the place where we look at creativity through the eyes of our esteemed guests who choose a handful of objects that inspire them. My name is Nihal Arthanaika, and you're joining me from my home, given, of course, the current circumstances. So do forgive any glitches, whether you hear my 15-week-old puppy trying to uh, eat a chair leg, or indeed my wife and kids going about their daily business. Now, my guest today gave up a 20-year career as an investment professional to become an author. His first book, Rules of Civility, was named one of the best books of 2011 by the Wall Street Journal. His second novel, A Gentleman in Moscow, came out in 2016. It's the story of a man sentenced to house arrest inside a luxury hotel in Moscow. And it was on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year. And more recently, it has appeared in multiple lockdown reading lists from the likes of Bill Gates to the Duchess of Cornwall. Today, he talks to me down the line from Manhattan in New York. It's Amor Tals. Amor, welcome. It's great to have you here. Good afternoon, Neil. Now, you've got with you some objects which have inspired your creative process, and we'll get to those in a moment. But first, I'm really interested about this transition from literature to investment banking back to literature. I mean, how did you end up being diverted for two decades? Yeah. Your, your, your description was an apt one, I think, in my circumstances. I, but, and you're right to put it as uh, literature to finance and back again. Um, I began writing fiction as a kid. I wrote fiction in high school, in uh, college, in graduate school. So from a very early age, it was my primary passion um, but when I was 25 and arrived in New York City unemployed, I began my life in New York as someone who was writing fiction full time. But I quickly found that at that age, I wasn't particularly enjoying being cooped up in my apartment all day and I wasn't making any money. My father was frustrated with that turn of events. And so I ended up uh, joining a friend of mine who had started an investment firm and 20 years later, we were still side by side. Now, eventually, I knew that if I didn't get back to writing fiction, I would probably end up a, a bitter drinker as an older man. So uh, in my 30s, I began writing fiction while still on the job and, and wrote a novel, which I set aside. And then I wrote another novel. And that was Rules of Civility. And when that became a bestseller, I retired uh, from my firm. Did you derive any sense of a similar artistic satisfaction from the world of finance? Was there a creativity in it that appealed to that very, very clearly formed creative life and creative personality that you had? The Venn diagram between those th satisfactions and the satisfaction of writing fiction actually has pretty limited overlap. <laughs> I <can't You> know, <laughs> there's yes. a certain problem solving involved in, in, in uh, creating a novel and you can kind of, you, you, the entrepreneurial life provides that. There's an entrepreneurial aspect to being an, a writer, which I probably pursue more than many given my background. But that's also not about the page. That's about how you manage the professional side of your life. But the actual satisfactions of writing fiction, of editing your own fiction, of crafting, of imagining the, the events 
of discovery, of uh, human insight through the process of writing, none of that is in the investment business. And that's, of course, what most writers come back to writing for, is, is those experiences. So then when you do the research, you make a prediction, that bet lands and you make money for yourself and your clients and the buzz associated with that achievement. What is the comparable buzz in the process of being an author? The nature of, of the creation of art, I think, you know, for most people, um, it's much more private. The rewards of it are much more elusive uh, and unusual because you could write a page or a chapter or a book and be very satisfied with the outcome and make no money on it, have very few people read it, receive very limited praise and still have that level of satisfaction, you know, because the rewards of artistic creation are that are very private and intimate and do not depend upon these, you know, other broader external forms of reward. Now, it's nice to get those things too. Don't get me wrong, of course. Um, but, but that's not why I think any serious writer is writing. You're not writing to make money or to make friends or to you know, ring a, a public bell of some kind. You're doing it because the engagement with the craft is so deeply satisfying and so essential to who you've become as a person that to avoid it, you avoid it at your own peril. Let's um, we'll go to your first object. Now, why did you choose the New York Times crossword puzzle? I start my day with the New York Times crossword puzzle, a cappuccino and a bagel usually, you know, in my study. And that, that's how I start my day. I mean, I see my wife, I see my children, but quite quickly I retreat with my breakfast, my, my, my uh, crossword, and I have pulled the crossword from the newspaper because I, the la I, what I don't want to see is the newspaper's headlines. I don't want to look at my email. I don't want to look at Twitter or Instagram. And frankly, I don't want to be involved in conversations for the most part. I have a little bit of, hi, everybody, and you know, we quick hug back and forth, have a good day at school. But I don't want to get into conversations about the details of life at the start of the day. I want to transition as, as quickly and cleanly as I can into a creative space. And, and so the, the crossword puzzle is an important sort of tool for me in that sense. It, it, it's the transition for me into the day. I have the coffee. I have the cappuccino. The crossword does not bring along with it any baggage in the way that a newspaper would or a, a discussion about, you know, with my kids about the weekend or, you know, taking a phone call from my mother. You know, it doesn't have any of that. It's very benign. It's very, very friendly and supportive. Um, and it's a puzzle, of course. So it's beginning to stimulate your mind. And it's about words, of course, which I, I'm devoted to. Uh, and, and so I, it's, that's how I start my day. And I go from the end of the crossword puzzle to my desk. And, and begin the process of writing, you know, ideally by, by 9 a.m. Where are you most at peace? You know, I love uh, being in nature. Now, that's ironic because I've lived in Manhattan for, you know, <laughs> 20, for 30 years now, for 30 years now. And I'll tell you, one of the strangest things about this moment in time is we have a house about an hour outside the city, which is very verdant. Um, you know, lots of natural life around me. I can't see another neighbor from, from where we are, from our weekend home. And in 30 years, this is the first spring that I have witnessed firsthand. 
I mean, I, I witnessed spring as a, as a child because you know, we lived in a suburb and we had flowers and trees and birds. And, and, I, and you live in Manhattan, you get a little bit of that, but you don't get much. So yes, we were, we've been here at this, on this property uh, for you know, three months almost now because of the, of the virus. And, and that's really given me the first chance, as I say, to see spring unfold firsthand day by day in more than half my life, which is really quite shocking. When lockdown began, did you think that a new set of readers may be drawn to a gentleman in Moscow? That was a, a pleasant surprise. I mean, it, it was one of those things, of course, the f- first time someone said it in a public fo- forum, I was like, oh, of course, you know, that, that's fascinating. You know, I, I could see that that is going to ring bells for some people. But yes, it, it, so you, we've seen that it enter the dialogue as a part of, of grappling with confinement. It's been an interesting thing to witness. Do you think of it as a as a comparison that is true to what you were trying to say initially, or do you think it is perhaps a superficial one? It depends on, on, on what we're talking about, right? I mean, the, um, on the one hand, in the United States, we've surpassed 100,000 deaths, mm. right? So there is a, uh, a magnitude of loss behind the headlines, although that's become a headline, of course, but I mean, behind the daily experience of it, there's a, a magnitude of loss in the nation, which is, which is confounding. And I would never suggest, you know, wouldn't ne- I don't think any author would want to say that, you know, that their novel is in some way, you know, an, a, a valuable, essential, important, you know, uh, offset no. to, to an experience no. like that, you know, oh my God. Right. And we have, never mind the unemployment numbers and the economic dislocation we're going to have. So, so, uh, on the one hand, I, you know, I, I humbly look at the book and think of it as a very small thing in a very big time. Um, now setting that aside for a second though, is the book designed to spur thoughts about about how one leads their life, about how they interact, about what they care about, what they prioritize. You know, uh, of course, the, the book uh, hopefully has all of those things in it. And um, so in, th- in that sense, I, I, I think it's there's a genuine component to it. That's certainly not limited to my book. It's, we've all, part of the reason we return to novels again and again is because they can bring us that, those kinds of satisfactions in, in our darker hours as well as in our bright hours. And, and so, I don't, again, I don't want to overstate that a gentleman in Moscow is particularly well designed for that outcome. It's not. You know, I think that, that all novels done well uh, can, to some degree, provide these types of, of satisfactions and, and consolations uh, uh, in the context of daily life. Is it a novel... A gentleman in Moscow that is meant to be read and understood the first time you read it. I like to think one of the goals I set myself is that I, I want to write in such a way that the reader is rewarded by second or third readings. Right, and and so I, it's almost kind of a measure to me of whether I'm I'm whether the book is rich enough and intricate enough or entertaining enough, you know, all these various components 
if someone read it once and closed the thing and, and then began to open it a second time and got 50 pages and said, oh, I would, I can't believe I'm, you know, first of all, I'm not tempted to ever read again. But second of all, as I started a second reading, it, it leaves me, you know, it's, it's a letdown. Um, that would be a disappointment for me artistically. I, I want the opposite. I, I want someone to close the book and for them to kind of, to, for, for them to dwell on it, for it to return in their imagination or memory on occasion. And for when they, if they chose to reopen it, that it would reward them for doing so. Now, again, that's a very high ambition, but I think that's, and so that different people of different genders, different races, different ethnicities uh, can pick up that book, be entertained by it, moved by it, can be, find insight in it, um, can draw conclusions about it uh, all at the same time. And that furthermore, the same person could pick up that book at the age of 20, at 40, at 60, and have that experience, be entertained, be enriched, be enriched in a new way, though, you know, at the age of 40 or 60. And, and that's, of course, why we return to Shakespeare, to Melville's Moby Dick, why we return to 100 Years of Solitude by Marquez, by the works of Virginia Woolf or Henry James or Edith Wharton, is, is because those finished products. I mean, those those works of art provide that level of intricacy. And that's my ambition. Now, whether I achieved or not, that's what I'm gunning for. How do you then avoid the trap of trying to prove you're cleverer than the reader and thus perhaps sentencing your book to just being a kind of battle that you feel like you're trudging through someone else's intellectual sludge rather than enjoying the experience? Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's a very good question. Uh, you know, and I think the answer is that the a young writer, as a young writer, and me included probably, as a young writer, we, you're prone to mistake uh, sort of complexity in the technical sense or, or uh, aspects of, you know, usually the esoteric words or, or esoteric ideas or, you know, referencing high ideas or, you know, uh, you know, complicated paragraphs, you know, uh, construction. We make the mistake as young people of assuming this is the road to the richness that I described a few minutes ago, when in fact it's not. In fact, it's, it can be the barrier to that road. You know, the young writer taking themselves seriously, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe me in college or whatever, for sure. You know, the, you know, it's a pretentious approach and, and it feels that way to the reader. It's off-putting. It, it's, it feels empty. It feels like a game. Uh, you know, we've all read those kinds of things and, and, mm, and yes. they can be entertaining in the short term, uh, maybe if it's done well, but mostly they're unsatisfying. And, and what makes the book satisfying is, is, is you know, it's the simple image that somehow vibrates in the course of the novel. So the mystery is not in, in this sort of artificial complexity. It's in trying to figure out what is it about a very simple thing that somehow is in harmony with ideas, emotions that are around it, such that it sets off this sort of vibrating experience that, that the, the author or the reader cannot pin down exactly because, in fact, there is not a single reason as to why that's true. There are 15 reasons. And again, that's why mm -hmm. people return to that passage again and again and debate what it means and, and what it means to them, you know, um, uh, is because it, it doesn't mean this one thing. It, it somehow is in harmony with all these various elements in an almost chaotic way. Um, but it's chaotic in the sense that, you know, we can't see uh, how 
the various elements are, are the role they're playing in relation to each other. Let's move from literature to music yeah. and uh, an album that was released, what, uh, 45 years ago, yeah. um, Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. Why was this another one of your objects today? Well, there's multiple reasons. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a classic rock on vinyl fan. I grew up in the golden age of it. So listening to records on vinyl and and the great sort of uh, art, artists of the classic rock era are were my heroes. In many ways, Dylan was a bigger hero for me earlier than most of the writers I really admire. You know, the, the great writers who I've come to admire are people I discovered after I discovered uh, my affinity to Dylan's lyrical approach, I guess. Um, but and I think of Blood on the Tracks as, as basically a perfect record. You know, it's one of those records where, as an artistic achievement, it, it has a sort of a universal tone. Uh, the tone to it is cohesive. It feels organic. You can tell it was written over a period of days rather than years by a single person. You can tell that they, the various uh, songs have been brought together to be in kind of loose harmony, even though they tell different stories in different ways. Um, so as a work of art, I, I think it's, it's wonderful. I use music a lot to prepare myself to do my work or to complement the effort of my work. Um, as I've kind of implied already, I do think that for me, the artistic process as a writer involves getting lost in the moment uh, so that you can draw on your subconscious. I am a very detailed outliner. I know everything that's gonna happen in one of my novels uh, long before I write chapter one, um, but I use that outlining paradoxically, as a tool so that when I'm in chapter 17, and I know everything that's going to happen before or after that, I don't have to worry about solving those problems while I'm writing that chapter. While I'm writing that chapter, I can allow myself instead to drift into the realm of poetry and the subconscious and, and hopefully tap into a moment where bubbling up through the writing process are human insights or poetic observations or... Uh, surprises among the characters or, you know, these various things which are not planned. Um, and to be in the state of mind where that's happening effectively, uh, can you, <laughs> some massaging can help. And so again, that's why I start the day with that crossword and the cup of coffee by myself. It's why I don't engage in the external world before I'm at my desk. And, and using music over the course of my writing process can get me into that frame of mind or state that I, I want to be in. Um, and I've, you know, over the course of my, let's say, A Gentleman in Moscow, there would be several albums that I might listen to beginning to end a hundred times over the course of writing that book, because I found that it sort of gets me into the right frame of mind again and again and again and again, you know. Um, and so Blood on the Tracks has has always been kind of a go-to for me in terms of, of uh, getting me in the right mood to create work. I guess it's no coincidence, of course, that you pick Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature, of all things. So there is yeah, exactly. certainly something of the author within him. Um, but of course, he, as a songwriter, has to learn how to say things with fewer words, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. In a way, that's an advantage. I mean, I'm not, not saying that my job is harder than his, but 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 of course, the, one of the great dangers of the novel is that it can use, you can it can be a thousand pages long. Uh, and or 500, which is still quite long. And at 400, it can be a wordy 400, you know. So sort of in a way, one of the challenges of uh, of, of narrative writing is is having after a, a creative, 
you know, burst of creating all this language is then to start cutting it back and bring it down to that the most core and, uh, and simple form that it, so that it can do its, its greatest work. Let's move on to your next object, uh, Amor. And you've had your coffee, you've had your bagel, you've had your day at your desk listening to Dylan. And uh, you need a martini at the end of each day? Yeah, well, I... Well, yeah, right. I, I, the, the, the item, <laughs> the object it, it, that I, I suggested, I mean, that, that's on the list is, is it's a very specific martini glass because it is, it's a, it's about a two and a half to three ounce martini glass. Now, if you went back to the 1930s, that was the martini glass. Everybody had a three ounce martini glass on their table, which, which wouldn't even necessarily be filled to the top at that point. Uh, you know, a normal pour of alcohol is two ounces. And, and so that's what the drink would be. It'd be pure alcohol with a little bit of vermouth or a little bit of this or that, but but it would be, you could hold it in a two and a half ounce glass. So the traditional martini glass was that shape. And my wife and I found uh, sort of a collection of these old martini glasses of that size. Now, the great virtue of that, of course, is that, you know, if you go to a modern restaurant, the martini glass is an upside down triangle. So if you make it taller, you're increasing the volume geometrically. If you get my mm. point, right? Yes. At two inches high, it's a two ounce pour. At three inches high, it's a six ounce pour. At four inches high, it's you know it's an eighteen ounce pour. Something crazy. <laughs> and so you know you go to these modern restaurants, you say can I have a martini? And what they put you know they put down is like twelve ounces of alcohol. Now I mean, never mind the fact that you're you know you're not gonna you're gonna feel miserable <laughs> the next day. It will absolutely be warm by the time you get to the bottom of it. You know which is anathema to a martini drinker. So so yes the the the, the two ounces we we love it because it, first of all you can have a second. You know, you can't have a second of a martini at a restaurant. My God, you'll never get home. So, so, but yeah, you have a small, but there's something about it too, that it's, it's the right dimensions for us. My wife and I sitting down on Friday night, week over, you know, having our moment to ourselves and yeah, it's a great satisfaction. Now I don't just drink martinis. I'm an omni, omni drinkerous. So yeah, I will do something. We'll make a cocktail, a different cocktail uh, every night at five o'clock, and it's very civilized. Well, that's amazing. Uh, are you someone who craves new experiences, or do you like the things that you like, and you find new experiences through creating imaginary worlds? It's it's more the latter. I, you know, I uh, I wish I was more of a new experience person. It always sounds so exciting. You know, when you see it. <laughs> <laughs> on yeah. somebody else, you know, yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I, you know, I joke my, my last spring, this is, I guess last spring we were, we went away as a family on a family adventure, you know, like we, 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 we went to uh, Patagonia and it was amazing. So we come home from, from that in, you know, mid-March or whatever, the kids had a great time, my wife had a great time and we sit down and we're having our martini that we're talking about. I think, I think it was like the night we came home or the next night, and my wife is opens up a book and she says, I'm thinking about going to Egypt. And I'm like, what? And she goes, yeah, maybe, you know, do, do you have any interest? I'm like, wait, what? You know, because <laughs> my mindset is, you know, I have done it. You know, I went to a foreign country. I ate foreign food. We spoke a foreign language. I had hiking boots on, you know. I was in snow in, you know, March. Check, check, check. I was on a plane for 16 hours. Check, you know. And that's it. I'm done for the year. Hurrah. You know, and my wife is immediately like, where are we going next? You know, so, so that's, 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 that's one of the, that's why that's the main conflict in our marriage. So she now travels alone, you know, for part of the year. Um, but yes, so going back to your thing, I do that one adventure and I feel like that's in the bank and I can spend the rest of the year at home with my crossword puzzle and my Bob Dylan. There you go. That's exactly right. But also creating completely new worlds. And that's an extraordinary gift because you didn't 
decide to do another novel set in Manhattan, of course, which is a place you know very well. Yeah. You decided to go to Russia at a time of extreme upheaval and not a time you would have presumably any either family links to, um, certainly not links of experience, personal experience. That's right. I, and you're right. I, I, that is um, where I go for my adventure, as it were, um, is into some realm of the imaginary. I, I think there are there are clearly great writers who draw very closely from their personal experience and find great artistic energy from doing so. I, being in a situation which I have not been in, uh, I'm a sharper observer, I find. And, and there's a great joy, that, you know, going back to one of the things you asked earlier about, you know, what, the kinds of satisfactions that one gets through the creative process. As I travel the country, talking about a gentleman in Moscow, or as I receive, you know, emails from readers, if someone says, you know, here's a sentence that, or a parag- paragraph, a passage that was very moving or was incredibly insightful or, or, you know, it resonated with me so much. I wrote it down. I, you know, I sent it to my daughter. I put it on a post-it, you know, on the wall or whatever. When they say that to me and they show me the passage, 99% of the time, the passage they're talking about is something that I would never have thought myself in the course of my daily life. It's not something I would... A uh, piece of advice I would give my children. It's not an observation I would make to my wife or my friends. It's not something I would have the the personal insight to consider in my own experience. Almost always, that those sort of moments of lucidity about human experience um, have come about because I've created a character who I am not, as you just said, you know, with a background that is not mine, and a, and a personality which is not mine. But I've thought about that person long enough that I, 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 you know, they're coming to life for me. I then put that person in a situation that I've never been in. And when they're in that situation, given their background, their personality, they look at the circumstance in front of them and they'll suddenly they'll say, as I'm writing, you know, the thing about it is da, 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 whatever it is. And those things come, come very fast through the keyboard. And, and usually I hit the period at the end of one of those things. And I'm like, you know what? Well done. Well done, Count. You know, you you really nailed the, you know, hit the nail on the head with that one, you know, because it's almost like, as I say, it was a gift to me. I I didn't, it's not the kind of observation, the poetic observation I would have uh, in the course of my daily life. It's come about through the creative process. Um, And, you know, that's one of the satisfactions of it. Um, Let's go to your final object now. It's someone who's already come up a number of times in our conversation. Um, I'm not sure if she's with you now or she's... Oh. Oh, well, she has to be with you now because no, she can't yeah. travel anywhere. She can't right. be halfway up Machu Picchu or anything without you at the moment. Um, it is your wife. And tell yeah. us about this this final object. Yeah, so it is, it is a photograph that is on my desk. And it was taken... The two of us were hiking in, in Zion National Park in, in the southwest of the United States. And, and so let me say right off the bat that... That was, it was one of the only times we've gone hiking in our life together. So, you know, usually, and, and, and of course, is that there's a little bit of a, um, f- you know, uh, shared fakery. We were dating. We were not engaged yet. We've been dating for a while. And we said, you know, let's go, let's do something together this summer. And we're like, let's go hiking. And, and I think at the moment that I got say, said, we both were kind of like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm a hiker. Sure. You know, you kind of fake it a little bit. <laughs> 
So we find ourselves out there, uh, you know, hiking Zion, and it was fabulous. And we had such a nice time. But at a certain point, I took a picture of her excited, looking looking at, looking at the camera excited. And the, the photograph on my desk is only about three by three inches, two by two inches. And, and it's mostly her facial expression, looking you know, excited, having a good time. And of course, she's looking at me because we're alone together on this hiking trail and I'm taking the picture. And, and you know, why is it there? Well, of course, it's because I love my wife. Uh, you know, why is it on the list and why is it on my desk? It's partly because I love my life. But but part of the question is what inspires me in my, in my writing and, and, um, and in the course of my daily task, you know, what keeps me going? You know, and having the picture of her kind of looking back at me is, is very helpful on the one hand because she's very supportive and we, you know, we, we love each other's company. Having this picture from 30 years ago when we were quite young, there's something about that that's very positive for me too. And it's it's a bittersweet positive. On the one hand, it sort of gives me this kind of youthful energy to go on, you know, just keep moving, you know, write the next passage. Um, but on the other hand, it's kind of also a reminder that time is zipping along, you know, and uh, <laughs> which is also its own kind of incentive, you know, to get some work done, um, but from a with a very different kind of uh, tenor about it. But yeah, so she she sits there and, and you know and keeps me going, and and because I don't talk to anybody while while I write, and in fact. When I write a novel, I don't share the first draft of the novel with anybody. I don't share a page of it with anybody until it's done. So, the, you know, it takes me three years to write a novel. And during that time, it's, it's very lonely in that sense. So, yeah, having the friendly face there on the desk makes a big difference. So when does the next novel enter our world? I am working right now. I mean, it's right in front of me at this moment. I'm working on my new novel, which is about... Three 18-year-old boys and an eight-year-old boy who are on their way from Nebraska to New York City in 1954. And the whole book, it takes place over 10 days. Um, and I hope to, I'm in, I hope to finish the first draft this summer. So as of now, I've worked on it for a couple of years and no one has seen it. Um, but then hopefully, you know, we'll, if, if all goes well, it might be uh, come out next fall and and through Penguin Random House in both America and England. Amal, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. What an utterly inspiring man you are. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. I don't know about that, but thank you. You really are. And whilst we're here, do remember to rate, comment and subscribe to the Penguin Podcast. Please let us know what you think. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. The Killing Floor by Lee Child. On the day Margrave, Georgia, has its first murder in 30 years, Jack Reacher has just walked into town. A stranger to the locals, he's charged with the homicide. But as more bodies appear and secrets start to leak, it becomes clear there's more to this town than meets the eye. We pulled up at the doors of the long, low building. Baker got out of the car and looked up and down along the frontage. The backup guys stood by. Stevenson walked around the back of our car, took up a position opposite Baker pointed the shotgun at me. This was a good team. Baker opened my door. Okay, let's go. Let's go, he said, almost a whisper. The first book in the Jack Reacher series, the audiobook edition of The Killing Floor, is available to download now.